Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Hear ye, hear ye, the trash man cometh. Author and global waste wonk Adam Minter on what we throw away and how we do it says about the changing international economy. His forthcoming book is Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. Stick around. Mark your calendar, Sunday, November 10th at the National and RVA. Full disclosure, live with Not A Surf, one of my very favorite bands, tells its 25-year story of success, collapse, rebirth, and making it in the brutal era of digital music. I'll interview them for the show, and then they'll play a full concert. Tickets at facebook.com slash fulldradio. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Not a surf and full disclosure at the National. Sunday, November 10th. Join us. Joining me from Kuala Lumpur, all the way over the equator in Malaysia, is Adam Minter, author of the forthcoming book, Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. I'm also a huge fan of his first book, Junkyard Planet. Uh, you could think of Adam as a thinking man's uh, garbage man. He likes to dumpster dive and landfill dive, and in this case, uh, was was looking at the world's um, predilections for disposals and hoardings across various cultures. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. No, no. Lo- love having you on. I mean, I've been reading your stuff about plastic. That gets hits on Bloomberg Opinion so much. And there was a sure. an NPR piece this morning on um, some guy that is um, going through the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and he actually called in on a sat phone. It seems like that is the, I wouldn't dare call it the kind of the charismatic furry creature of this this waste crisis right now, but everybody seems to be talking about plastic and the plastic straw. And the plastic straw is suddenly the bet noir of of everybody out there. Yeah, I think so, and I think your uh, the touch point of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is is the correct one. I mean, just sort of in my business, the area I cover, um, we all, uh, you know, meaning uh, the people, the handful of people who who cover these things, really felt a surge in interest when the Great Pacific Garbage Patch became something that emerged onto sort of mainstream consciousness. And you know, it took a few years for plastic straws to get connected to that, but but there's definitely been sort of a congruence of factors that have brought this all together and created this waste crisis, which, you know, I'm not sure we're necessarily facing a waste crisis, but I think what we're probably facing is is greater public consciousness of the issue surrounding waste. Adam, why did it take so long? It seems like this is a design flaw for manufacturers. I mean, you you go back to the graduate and the famous, you know, Dustin Hoffman gets accosted in plastics. And and you think about all of the plastics that were churned out, the billions and billions and billions of tons of it, and just the tiny little sliver that were actually truly recycled. I mean, it, it seems like an enormous loophole that manufacturers were able to exploit, the likes of Unilever and Procter and & Gamble and everybody for years. It's like, it's again, private profits and then socialized picking up of the tab. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that your observations are correct. I think sort of the catalyst really was the development of economies in Asia, um, led by China, but, you know, followed most recently, of course, by economies in Southeast Asia. You know, and as economies develop, especially in this modern era, consumers tend to um, adopt, you know, the disposable items that we have adopted in developed countries. Um, but, you know, unlike, say, you know, somebody who's living in New York City or Minneapolis, there really isn't much waste infrastructure there, in, you know, in Southeast Asia. 
I'm in Malaysia, you know, and in the office building where I'm at, it, it doesn't have regular, you know, garbage pickups, much less recycling. And so, you know, initially that may not have seemed like much of a problem because the consumption levels were really low. But over the last 10 years in particular, the consumption levels have gotten so high and you start seeing these large waste dumps on the outskirts of cities like Beijing and Shanghai or, you know, or, or down here outside of Kuala Lumpur. And that those dumps um, generally, which are built up from the consumption in these economies, are contributing to this ocean plastics problem. And I think that's really what has led us to this moment, is it, it really is the rise of a consumer class in developing countries. And now, instead of having one billion consumers, middle class consumers, you know, the world has, you know, three or four billion. Yeah, and so we are all connected. The analysis is something on the effect of five to eight rivers, predominantly in Asia, contribute to the preponderance of this problem. I mean, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch between Hawaii and California gets all of the attention, but it's it's not difficult, you know, um, to go to a beach on the eastern seaboard and find ocean debris from, uh, you know, plastic debris from a, a world away. Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, but you know, and and, and you, it's something you really feel when you are in developing Asia. And, and for this last book, I spent time in in Africa as well, developing Africa. Is you'll you'll see, you know, in every town there will just be these informal dumps, and these dumps are often built, uh, you know, informally beside rivers, and those rivers become the conduit to which these plastics make their way into the ocean. Um, you know, and and that's very much the case in in Asia. Asia. And in fact, the studies have been done that the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, you know, the majority of, of the material flowing into it is coming out of these developing parts of Asia, in particular China, which is the greatest contributor to it. Um, and it's just because they've built, you know, these cities and these consumer classes, but the and the waste dumps and the waste management just hasn't kept up. And because of that, you see it flowing into those, you know, into, into these nether regions where it, it doesn't belong. Adam, do you believe that it has become truly an issue of urgency for the the multinationals and that, especially in the age of, of Instagram and social media, that any of their products can kind of be tagged and they can be shamed for not being stewards of the complete cycle? I mean, you see the 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 the, the chairman of SC Johnson going out there and actually posing with these things and saying we need to do it. I'm still getting the impression that it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and they're not going to take responsibility for the entire life cycle of their products, from production, from, you know, with the derivatives from oil to, to ultimate recycling, responsible disposal or incineration of it. I think you're right on that. I think from their perspective, this is a... Uh public relations crisis, you know, in developed countries, which are, which are paying attention to it far more than it's being paid attention to in, in developing regions. And, and, and the proof really is the kinds of products that you see, um, still being distributed, you know, throughout developing countries, oftentimes by, you know, these multinationals, which are making, you know, very loud noises, you know, about being sustainable companies and, and addressing these issues in, in developed countries. You know, I can think, uh, if you, you know, in Indonesia, for example, um, you'll see uh, water, you know, bottled water, only it's not distributed in bottles, which are plastic bottles, which are relatively easy to recycle. It's distributed in plastic bags, you know, and those plastic bags are are torn open and, and tossed on the ground. And so there's no disposal, uh, uh, you know, solution for them. Or, uh, you know, I've heard a number of environmental activists in Indonesia um, uh, talk about plastic cups of water. This is something that, you know, you wouldn't see distributed in the United 
United States or in Germany, uh, the public, you know, which has become more sustainably minded, you know, would positively riot over these things in the current climate. But in, in Indonesia in particular, it's perfectly acceptable to say, hold a wedding where you're distributing these disposable plastic cups of water, um, which are made by multinationals to, to your guests. And so uh, until you see, you know, issues like that addressed more directly by the multinationals, I don't think you, you can say that they're, uh, they're viewing it as a crisis. And, and, and so I think that is a problem. And, and, and I think we're still some time off from that being addressed correctly. And Adam, before we, we get into your book, Secondhand, forthcoming this year, Travels in the New Global Garage, so I do want to wonk out on plastic a bit more because, it's it's mm-hmm. again, it's pulling everybody in. You write a column about the plastic straw and it goes crazy everywhere. Like, you, right. you know, contrarian piece, like it's it's a nice start, but it's really not going to make a difference when you look at the, the lot of, of um, you know, fishing-related waste and nets and buoys and all the other things that we see in the ocean that then break down into microplastics, that this is, tr- you know, it's, it's a symbolic thing, but it's truly, truly, truly a tip of the, the trashberg, if you will. Right. Um, I'm wondering why innovation has been so slow with this. For, for starters, plastic itself, I mean, the big changing event last year in 2018 was China, which was the buyer of size of all of, of the world's plastic because the shipping containers can go back full and there was smaller incremental costs in them taking it on. China suddenly says, we don't want it. And then all these other economies in that region, in the South China Sea, follow on and saying, don't give it to us either. Right? They, uh-huh. they clearly can't make an economic case for incinerating this stuff and maybe recapturing some of the, the the BTUs and the hydrocarbons that are embedded in it. And this has started a huge backlog back into the United States where you see right. constant coverage of municipalities that are just saying, you know what, we're, we're, we're no longer doing recycling. It was a loss leader beforehand, and now it's just prohibitively expensive. So why hasn't somebody come out and say, you know, for example, we can we can use some of this stuff as a feedstock into something. There's so much of it. It's free. People want to give it away. Why hasn't that happened, or what will it take for that to happen? Right. Well, I think you you you've just hinted at it, and that is that there there really hasn't been a market incentive to do it. I mean, most people, I think, at least in developed countries, tend to think of recycling as a environmental imperative. Um, but the reality is is that uh, recycling, for it to work, tends to have to have economic incentives. Otherwise, nobody's going to do it. Nobody is going to sort through your trash and make it into new stuff unless they're paid to do it. And for a very long time, uh, there was simply were good enough economic incentives that, you know, the stuff disappeared. Um, some of it disappeared in the sense that it was recycled in developing countries like China, which, you know, used it. I was in those recycling factories, some of which were deplorable, but, you know, some of that plastic could be used in automobile parts and, and electronics and other kinds of uh, things, and others were just burnt. Um, with China cutting off its market, there simply wasn't enough demand from manufacturers in Southeast Asia uh, to use it, and you combine the you know, and so as a result, you have this this surplus. Then you turn it around and you have a public that's angry about it. Suddenly you have um, your economic incentive because you're, there are recyclers and there are companies that make these products that want to, at a minimum, blunt the public outrage. And so we're starting to see real innovation in this sector, but it's going to take time. I always, uh, when I talk about innovation in the recycling sector, I always uh, refer people back to the automobile. Most people don't think of the disposal of automobiles 
ourselves as an environmental problem. But in the 1960s and 70s, it was a, you know, there were so many abandoned cars in the United States that both Presidents Johnson and Nixon actually cited them as major environmental problems. But it took about 30 years for the solution, the actual technologies to recycle those automobiles to emerge. You know, I think we're all hopeful that uh, things will proceed more quickly with plastics, and I, I believe they will. Um, and for many of the same reasons, just the public is outraged by it. And so that creates the market incentive to do it. And so I'm, I'm optimistic over the next five years, we're going to see some solutions to this. You know, it's interesting. I talk about charismatic species beforehand, and they, they say that that's the, the opportunity and the, the lament when you look at the Endangered Species Act. The more charismatic the animal is, the better chance it has of, of you know, you ginning up protection and right. running up advertising campaigns. There was that sea turtle that had this plastic straw pried from its nose ever so painfully, um, and that, that was filmed and put all over social media. And that seems to have sounded the death knell for the plastic straw kind of as, as not being taboo. You and your analysis says even if we were to buy the, the questionable claim that Americans use 500 million plastic straws per day, for example, which sounds awful, even if all of these straws were suddenly washed into the sea, you wrote, they'd account for only about 0.03% of the 8 million metric tons of plastics estimated to enter the oceans in a given year. Uh, by way of contrast, you say a recent survey by Ocean Cleanup, a group developing technologies to reduce ocean plastic, says that you know in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, in the garbage patch that it did an aerial analysis of, at least 46% of plastic by weight in that garbage patch comes from a single product, fishing nets. Other fishing gear makes up a good chunk of the rest. So if anything, that should be the target if we wanted to be, you know, getting most bang for your outrage. Right. It should be the fishing industry. And you have noticed that in the past, consumers have been efficacious in kind of dolphin-free tuna with the fishing industry. Exactly. But, you know, these are the hard problems, but they're also the problems that get at sort of the structural issues in consumption, because ultimately, waste and consumption are tied together. Um, and, you know, and the supply chains that supply our consumption, you know, in the case of the, you know, the dolphin, uh, the dolphin free tuna, it was, you know, people want to eat tuna that was, uh, you know, a, as a byproduct of that, you have dolphins get captured. And so people had to address entirely how, you know, tuna was captured. And again, I think in some sense, you, you want to say that, you know, the same sort of effort is going to have to be concentrated on fixing this ghost gear, which is what the problem of, you know, nets uh, floating around in the ocean is, is you're, you're going to have to fundamentally change how companies go about catching the seafood that we all consume. And that's going to require consumer demands, but it's also going to require, you know, changes in how we consume, um, changes perhaps in how much we pay. And those are the hard uh, issues to address, but they're also the ones that can make the biggest impact. In your further analysis, you write for Bloomberg Opinion, just eight countries in Asia are responsible for about 63% of total plastic waste flowing into the oceans. You um, talk about these developing economies lacking access to garbage collection, modern landfills, and incineration. Any progress in reducing ocean plastics is going to have to start with them. I mean, scientists estimated in 2015 that 88% of the waste generated in Vietnam is either littered or tossed into uncontained dumps. In China, which has a great picker culture, the rate is about 77%. By comparison, in the United States, the rate is 2%. 
Right. And, you know, and, and that's the advantage of being a developed country that's had many years of experience with with taking out the trash and can afford to do it. I mean, one thing I think that, you know, is easy to take for granted if you live in a developed country, whether it's Japan or the United States, is that, you know, waste management, everything from your recycling program to your composting program, if you're lucky enough to have one too, you know, your waste disposal program that sends things to an incinerator or a dump is incredibly expensive. It employs a lot of people, many of them people who have skills. And your average developing country really struggles to meet that standard. Um, If you go to Africa, you know, many cities will spend as much as half of their municipal budgets on waste collection. And those waste collections won't be nearly as good as what you would find, you know, in any American city. And so that's the real challenge. You know, in the absence of that quality trash collection, you're going to see trash dumped by riversides. And in these informal dumps that ultimately, you know, blow into rivers and pollute the oceans that we all share. I, you know, as much as global warming is a global issue that requires global solutions, so too does, you know, the, the issue of ocean plastics and its sources in developing countries. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Adam Minter, author of the forthcoming book, Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. His first book, Junkyard Planet, told the story of the global recycling trade that has transformed the global economy and environment. You could think of him as kind of a crown prince of, of, of trash globally or a student of trash and, and waste habits. And I do want to kind of get into the nexus of um, how kind of uh, this crisis in plastic and, and, and at least this cognizance of the fact that um, our borders don't really protect us from everybody else's waste segs into your forthcoming book, Secondhand Travels in the sure. New Global Garage Sale. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I read the book, I enjoyed the book, and one of the things I take away from is kind of these vestiges of, you know, older economies. I had no idea, for example, that um, developing Asia was always hungry for used Japanese goods. These products were built so well, they were so sturdy. If you look like at a Marantz solid-state stereo receiver from the late 70s or early 80s, People in the Philippines, in Vietnam, in Malaysia will pay top dollar for these products. So there was always an embedded recycling uh, consideration in these things. You didn't have to worry about e-waste as much. Yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, um, you know, there were there were two factors. One, as you said, they were they're very well built, and two, um, you know, in Asia, in Southeast Asia in particular, Japanese fashion and style and the aesthetic is, you know, has a has a real following and a real love. So you combine those two things, um, and the fact that they're emerging economies that can't necessarily afford new, and you've got tremendous demand, you know, dating back really into the 1970s for these secondhand Japanese products, and it's it's long been um, a great outlet in Japan to uh, dispose of their secondhand stuff, not only as just to get it out of the country, but to actually get it out of the country and make money from it. So uh, for many Americans, this will sound somewhat familiar because we have a similar relationship to a number of other developing countries who who covet our stuff, though maybe uh, the make of our stuff isn't quite as you know auspicious as the make of some of these Japanese brands, especially from the 70s. But then you talk about... Um you know, for better or for worse. I mean, even though Japan has electronics companies, they've been struggling. That, for example, the TV business is hemorrhaging a lot of money. Most of this manufacturing was sucked into China. Uh, you know, even Sony, uh, gosh, Panasonic, all these things. There's no shame. In fact, there's no other way to do it but building in China. They have the contract manufacturers now. These guys churn out 
so much product and in such iterations, if you look at a smartphone that we replace every two years. Um, and then this takes it back to the area of kind of waste exporting. Again, I'm reminded of visiting Ghana uh, mm-hmm. back in 2007 and, and Nigeria. And some of the beaches are completely covered sure. in PCs and smartphones and things that little kids are taking apart to try to access maybe precious metals or things in it. And then they all wash back out to sea again. Sure. And and, and that's been the real change and really big shift in sort of the secondhand markets and the markets for used around the world. Um, as you note, you know, the, the manufacturing shifted to China and suddenly things got cheaper, uh, both in the sense of price, but also in sort of cheap, as in not well made. And one of the things that's happened over in recent years and is really accelerating, and in the book, I, I, I spend some time with one of the big used goods exporters in Japan, is that, um, you know, the, the demand for these Chinese made things that have been used in Japan has dropped off for two reasons. One, um, you know, they're they're just not considered as, as robust and as good a quality of product. But the second problem is even sort of a greater one. And that is, you know, China's ability to make the cheap product means that its manufacturers are actually able to export products to places like Africa and Southeast Asia that are cheaper than the secondhand stuff coming out of Japan. So it undercuts the secondhand market and completely obliterates it, and you lose the economic incentive to collect that stuff, much less uh, export it for reuse. And and that's become a real problem. And it, what it contributes to, and and this maybe sounds funny to some of your listeners who who think of recycling as as sort of this global good, but it, it contributes to more recycling. And a lot of that recycling isn't very nice, um, but it contributes to more recycling because there's less demand to use these things. These products that we think of as durable goods, whether it be a smartphone or a stereo receiver, though I don't think many people have stereo receivers anymore, or refrigerators, um, become more disposable because the manufacturing practices have gotten to the point where they're so cheap. And, And that destroys the promise of a secondhand market. And in your travels, I mean, through India, you know, you mentioned Latin America and other places, there is... Always, you could take for granted there was a a scavenging economy. There was a parallel economy. Uh, You talked about that vacuum and not having the infrastructure or the revenue for formal trash collection and responsible trash collection. And so by default, a lot of these enormous... Uh, open dumps were left open to people who would come and try to, uh, you know, pick them clean for metal parts or scrap or rag pickers. Um, that these are actually a, a, a pretty important part of the global waste stream of kind of dealing with the waste stream was the informal economy. No doubt about it, and it still is. I mean, uh, you know, you know, we've talked about you know the high cost of of actual formal garbage and recycling or and composting collection. Um, the reality is is that most countries on the planet um, outsource it informally to this informal sector. Um, and you know, the great example of that is China. Um, you know, where we actually have some data. Um, you know, the city of Nanjing until I believe it was 2014, and don't quote me on that one, but it was right around 2014, somewhere in the range of about 80% of its trash and recycling was picked up by informal pickers, people who make their living uh, doing this. That's a city of several million people. And, you know, if you go to India, you know, you can say that it's much higher. You you don't need to spend more than a day there to see the influence of, of these large uh, picker economies. But, you know, as consumer economies grow, it becomes harder and harder to rely 
rely upon the pickers to do this as well. And so that's contributing to some of the problems that we've been talking about. I mean, you know, if there's just too much stuff coming in, there's inevitably some of it's going to flow out into the environment and into waterways or, or into informal incinerators and trash dumps. Could you just concentrate on apparel, for example? That's something that we take for granted. That it's it's churned out um, high velocity. A lot of people just buy things seasonally here in the states from, say, an Old Navy, and mm-hmm. then you you end up giving it to Goodwill or someone else. And I also noticed a preponderance of, um, you know, you you go to suburban areas in mall parking lots. There are people that gladly take on used clothing. It used to be a feedstock for something. Right. Maybe they'd fill mattresses or pillows. And there's that famous Planet Money NPR Planet Money episode, I believe, yeah. where they follow bar mitzvah t-shirts or losing Super Bowl t-shirts to the west coast of Africa. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's uh, that's the amazing thing. You know, one one uh, probably the most wasted I probably not wasted is the right term, but it's certainly the 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 garment that makes its way into the secondhand sector more than any other is the t-shirt. And the problem is, is that these t-shirts aren't as well made as they used to be. Um, again, you know, going back to low cost manufacturing and what used to be something that was, you know, very much wanted and demanded, you know, in developing economies, whether it be Mexico or Ghana or Benin, um, the demand has fallen off. And so there's, there's really nowhere for it to go. Um, and so that's become um, a growing problem. And it's, ev- it's getting even bigger because, you know, we've all thought of China as this poor country for, you know, a very long time, but China has become a major exporter of secondhand clothing uh, to the rest of the world, specifically Africa and Southeast Asia. So you're seeing a flood of secondhand garments going into traditional markets at a time uh, when they're becoming lower quality and at a time when there's more and more low-cost Chinese garments, new ones, going into these economies. So again, what it creates is a preponderance of waste. It is apparel. Um, apparel and apparel, if you will, um, that, you know, we're all going to be facing if only because a lot of these textiles, at least until somebody figures out a solution technologically, perhaps, um, are going to have to be landfilled or incinerated. Adam Minter, I did read an interview that you sat for, and you talk about this this uh, fascination you have with the global waste stream and, and our general kind of anthropological habits of, of Uh, trash and waste and where it ends up. You said that this instinct is an inherited trait. For years, your father owned a Minneapolis scrapyard where you worked as a child and teenager, often doing manual labor, like hand-sorting plumbing scrap. Even though you chose not to go into that business, you continue to feel a strong kinship with the small-time traders, peddlers, and entrepreneurs who work in it, especially in developing countries. And you say you also feel a responsibility to share a more, quote, dimensional view of their lives than what they get from the narratives depicting them as exploited or dumped upon. I mean, there is this global opportunism, you know, trash picking and scavenging. That We really, I mean, you live in a big city like New York and people are passionate, uh, you know, there are scavengers. I, I swear, I was on the 104 bus talking to someone and he'll get off you know, we, we'd have a literary conversation. This is back in, say, 2005, 2006. And then he'll go look in a, in a trash can at the bus stop for, for, uh, for cans that can collect five cents a pop. Or you go to Michigan, which back in the day when everybody was using glass bottles, you could get famously 10 cents a bottle in Michigan. Uh, there was... Uh, you know, there was value embedded in some of these things, but everything else, and I'm struck that we're still saying this in 2019, you can still overwhelmingly choose a plastic bag and not pay for it across the United States. You could still, you know, 
overwhelmingly use single serve plastics and not have to worry about kind of use it and forget it and throw it out. And that has been, you know, I just remember that be, getting short shrift in Econ 101 as an externality. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, that's something that, that society has to bear the cost on. But now society realizes that it has a huge tab on its plate and it's trying to figure out how it's going to say to manufacturers and municipalities not so fast. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the is I my I like to tell people, you know, uh, you externalize to my family, you know, and to my immigrant relatives. Uh, you know, my great grandfather came to the United States. He wanted to uh, from Russia, speaking no English, no no job training really whatsoever. His dream apparently was to become a vaudevillian, um, but he ended up in Galveston, Texas. Uh, so that's not a real great place to be a vaudevillian. So he did what you do, which is you start picking up the discards that other people left behind. Um, you know, whether, you know, it, it started out apparently being textiles and, and then moved on to metals. And the externalization of, you know, back in the day, back in 1920s era America, when America was a developing region, um, you know, you were able to outsource to these peddlers like my my immigrant great-grandfather. That's less and less the case because there's more and more trash and it's more and more complicated, meaning it's more and more difficult to take apart and recycle and find places to go with it. And and I think really until about the last five years, it was easy for people in the United States and other developing countries to take it for granted that that was something that somebody else would do and that there was no real cost for it. I mean, one of the really remarkable things um, from the perspective of somebody who covers the waste and recycling industry is that um, it, you know, recycling programs were pretty much free. You know, the municipal programs you had in these suburbs and cities across the United States, they were profitable throughout the 2000s and really into the early part of this decade. And people could take it for granted that, you know, it was just done away with. But now that the markets have collapsed, especially in foreign uh, foreign countries like China and in Southeast Asia, you know, the piper, you know, the, the toll is coming due. And, and it's just as you said, people are, are finally facing up to the fact that there is going to be an economic cost for this, whether Whether it is the cost is, you know, met in terms of, you know, taxes on plastic bags, you know, higher, you know, recycling fees, higher costs for the cost of our products to account for the disposal costs that are going to be maybe pressed upon the manufacturers. It's all coming home. And it's really sort of the culmination of decades, if not a couple centuries of consumption. And now you you clearly have a problem with the the straight up quote dumping narrative that we're just externalizing this stuff on poor uh, emerging economies, developing economies where their kids that are are in landfills in unsafe conditions taking this stuff apart. We're taking advantage kind of this this uh, this decency or, or ethical arbitrage. And you say you have a problem with that dumping narrative. You um, were interviewed and you say at the moment the cost of sending a forty foot shipping container of discarded plastics from the port of Los Angeles to the port of Kalang in Malaysia, where many of California's plastic exports are heading since China's restrictions on imports, is roughly $1,200. Meanwhile, the cost of tipping a ton of solid waste into an LA-area landfill is about $52 a ton. That's a problematic pair of numbers if you're committed to explaining waste exports as externalization. After all, if it's cheaper to, quote, dump in L.A. than to dump in Malaysia, why are plastic recyclers in L.A. dumping in Malaysia? The answer should be obvious, right? The plastics aren't being dumped. They're being purchased by someone in Malaysia who, like an Amazon customer, pays the freight. 
And the reason they're willing to put up that money is because the plastic has value as a raw material for manufacturing or reuse. That's what I, I wrote in, uh, in that interview, and, and I stand by it. And it's, it's been a, I mean, it's an easy argument to make. I mean, if you've been around the industry and you just look at the base economics of it, nobody's going to pay more to do something when there's a cheaper way to do it. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it, it gets a lot of resistance uh, simply because these issues become very emotional. And a narrative that suggests that Westerners in particular are dumping on developing countries is very powerful, especially in sort of the current political climate in the United States and in some developing countries. Inevitably, um, some of this becomes very racial um, and very emotional for that reason. But but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, Asia in particular has been importing recyclables from around the world since the 1950s. And before that, it was the United States that was a developing country importing, you know, recyclables from Europe. It's a kind of an overlooked uh, piece of history. Um, but, you know, in the 19th century, the steel for American railroads was being imported from the UK um, to make American paper. Um, rather than cut down trees, um, American paper makers were importing textiles from the UK and using that as feedstock. And the reason they were doing that wasn't because they wanted to be dumped upon. It was because those were cheap raw materials that they could use to make stuff and sell it. And, and that's basically been the dynamic around globalized recycling uh, for, for you know 150 years. And, and it's the reason why I reject this idea that recycling is dumped. I always say recycling isn't dumped, it's imported. There is somebody in these developing countries who wants to import it for use. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to recycle it properly, and it doesn't mean that the person who's exporting it is going to export to them what they, you know, what they were paid to export. They may very well export to them stuff that shouldn't have been exported. But if they do that, then they're probably not going to get very many other orders. Ultimately, if you want to explain this phenomenon and address it, you have to address it economically. So what I don't understand, and this is the paradox of your analysis, is Malaysia is a developing economy. It's made enormous strides in mm -hmm. 20, 30 years, even just since the 1997, you know, Asian uh, rolling sure. financial crises. But why would they have the infrastructure to better deal with this ton of plastic from Los Angeles than Southern California would? Well, what happened after China started clamping down, you know, it, it, you know the, the China trade and recycling didn't actually just suddenly end in 2018. Um, China's imports of American recycling started to decline around 2011 and 2012. And there's very good data on that, Chinese government and U.S. government data. And the reason was the labor rates in China started getting higher and China became less competitive as a manufacturer. And as that happened, you saw manufacturing starting to relocate to Southeast Asia because it's cheaper to manufacture uh, in this region. And when in 2018 China closed the door to most plastic, it still allows some in, um, you saw a sudden, basically, exodus of Chinese recyclers who had previously operated in China, uh, move into Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand, and they took some of the practices that they had and set up shop in this region, but particularly in Malaysia. Um, and because Malaysia and China, for reasons we, we don't need to get into, they have, you know, they have a lar there's a large Malaysian ethnic Chinese population 
expansion of Malaysia uh, that has always kept uh, uh, Malaysia's business community close to China. It was it was relatively open arms to let them come in. Um, when they came in, they often operated in ways that are less than environmentally sound and were not up to the standard that uh, Malaysia allowed, but they would still do it. And much of the plastics that they imported uh, from the United States, from Europe, were then processed and then exported to manufacturers back in China. So it's actually Malaysia became a waypoint uh, in this trade. Instead of being able to process those materials in China, they were re-export. Uh, they they were processed in Malaysia and then re-exported up to China. But the um, specialized so- equipment, the separation equipment, and the grading equipment that kind of grinds this back down to pellets. You're saying that is that a comparative advantage that a China or these other countries have that the United States doesn't have this this well, recycling capability? Well, let me let me step back even. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the sorting that goes on uh, in these plastics, the Chinese style plastics recycling operations is hand sorting. And Malaysia, even though it's a developed country, it has a huge population of low cost migrant labor here. Um, folks from Myanmar, folks from Nepal, folks from Indonesia. And they are highly competitive, especially as people who can hand sort the plastics that come in. Um, and that's the competitive advantage. Advantage. The actual technology, once the once the plastics are separated, and if you separate them by hand, the actual technology to process them into at least a low-grade plastic that can be re-exported back to China or used locally, um, you know, isn't very complex. But the competitive advantage that Malaysia has in particular is the large amount of labor here that's below market. You know, by some estimates, 10% of the labor force in Malaysia uh, is illegal and is paid under you know the going rate and so that's the competitive advantage here and that's the thing that attracted a lot of these Chinese recyclers to come in you know Adam when you want to take a nice trip to Singapore uh, you know that that is a very command and controlled state everything is very clean very difficult to litter uh, guards its its harbors very carefully and there's this infamous uh, island made from uh, the ash of incineration all of the trash in Singapore is just very neatly incinerated Right. And so why isn't that the standard across the board? Like if, if, if you can't do anything else with it, just incinerate it to ash and worry about the smokestack scrubbers and everything that controls what's going up. Well, I think that is the future of of trash um, management in uh, Southeast Asia and in China and in developing countries. But it's very expensive. You know, again, we tend to think of trash as trash. Why do you need technology to manage it? But but you know, incineration technology that can handle trash in a you know an environmentally sound manner that doesn't harm the environment more or less and human health is quite expensive. And and the really the countries that are in the regions that are advancing that Japan um, and the Europeans, you know, they're not giving it away. Um, China has very much taken the approach that we are going to build Japanese style incinerators and the leftover, the fly ash they'll use in cement. Um, and they're building some of the biggest and the cleanest in the world. Um, and I think, you know, that technology, you know, if, if China's uh, willingness to export other kinds of infrastructure is any indication, I think you'll see that technology spread. Um, 
but yeah, it's I mean, hold on, early. hold on, to, hold on to that for a minute. That technology, if you were to build an environmentally responsible, as as much as the industry standard is, to sure. pro, you know, they talk about dioxins going out and CO two emissions, and because there's such a stream, if you think about all of this waste going in from e waste to plastics, plastics one through seven and beyond bioplastics, mm-hmm. it's hardly monolithic and you can't control for the different pollutants. But say you could say that with reasonable certainty, I can make sure there isn't that much dioxin going out, that much this, that much carcinogenic material. You are recapturing the the uh, the BTUs, if you will. You can go to places mm-hmm. like um, you know uh, uh, waste to energy plants in the United States, in Indiana, uh, in Canada. In uh, This stuff is very big in Scandinavia. And then Take that, reintroduce it back into the grid, and the fly ash or the slag afterwards, um, the 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 ash in the end, if it is bereft of heavy metals or other toxins, you can use it for construction materials. So that is a close. I mean, if you were to make an investment right now and say that we have just this these oceans, literally, of plastic <laughs> that we need to divert into something else, this seems to be a pretty uh, compelling. You know, answer to it, and China seems to be at the at the cutting edge of that technology. Absolutely, and and there's an enormous amount of money to be made in this right now in China. In fact, you know, I look at the Chinese business press every day, and and over the last couple months, in particular, uh, you've seen more and more uh, discussion in the Chinese business press about the money to be made from better environmental management technologies. And the ones that are mentioned most often are these clean burning incinerators. They're building some massive ones, but I think the next frontier is sort of these, uh, they're calling them micro incinerators that they would like to uh, place into neighborhoods so that they don't have to do as much trucking. You know, we'll see how that all works. And 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 I would, you know, I'd be very remiss if I didn't say that, you know, incineration has a very troubled history in China. Uh, you know, they, you know, of course, burning garbage is nothing new, um, but a lot of local governments in China over the last you know, 20 years when they've been faced with real estate pressures, um, they've opted to build incinerators rather than continue landfilling because they make money off the, the land. And those incinerators have not always been built well. Um, and uh, they've been built polluting. They have not had the scrubber technology on them. So um, what we're seeing in the last, you know, I'd say three to five years is a real improvement upon that. But it's going to take time. And again, you know, it's, it's burning of garbage. And ultimately, I don't think anybody should like the idea of burning garbage. I mean, we should all like the idea of somehow being able to reduce our consumption um, so that we are at least disposing of less. But reality, practicality dictates that, you know, for now, the consumer economy that we have requires that we build these kinds of facilities because you're simply not going to have landfills, especially in developing countries where land is limited, the technology to manage landfills uh, is limited. They're just, they're just not going to do it. They're going to need to burn that garbage in a safe way. It's interesting when you do see these municipalities and neighborhoods write uh, homeowners and say, we're going to have to seize recycling services because the cost has become so prohibitive in the wake of China's 2018 decision. It's not that clear cut that people are like, okay, I'll just throw it all in one bin and you can trash it for me. A lot of a lot of people, at least around my, you know, my sphere, like the kids, especially what they're learning in school, you have to pry recycling from their cold, dead hands. I don't care what you need to do. Uh, you know, you, we're we're gonna pay for it, and you're not gonna revert me back to the year 1980 where I just throw everything out. 
Yeah. And, and I think that's a real problem. Um, as you know, look, I, I grew up in the recycling industry. I, you know, I have a real love for the recycling industry. I also consider myself an environmentalist. And what I, I like to point out to people is, you know, that familiar, the familiar three R's reduce, reuse, recycle. Recycle is the third one, meaning it's the third, you know, it's, it's the worst thing you can do on that pyramid. It's the one that has the biggest impact. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's nothing necessarily to celebrate. It's certainly better than putting something in the trash, but I think it's also really important that as we recycle, you know, educate people about recycling, we also educate them about the limits of it. I mean, your average piece of paper can only be recycled about six times before the fibers within it break down and have to go to a landfill. They can't be used again. A lot of plastics can only be recycled once before the properties are gone. You know, these are things that mean it's a very limited solution in terms of environmental management. And, you know, and so I, you know, I want people to understand that even as they diligently recycle, I always tell people, you know, just because you recycle doesn't mean that you sort of get expatiation for the consumer sin of buying that thing in the first place. But unfortunately, we sometimes treat recycling as if, well, I've, I've bought it. So, you know, and now I've recycled it. So there's zero impact. It's gone to green heaven where the recycling fairies turn it into something. <laughs> you know, I've spent years around recycling plants and, you know, steel mills that use recycled metal it's it's there are no green fairies it's it's still manufacturing hmm. we're talking to adam minter author of the forthcoming book secondhand travels in the new global garage sale adam in the 10 12 minutes or so we have left i'm reminded of how big a hit marie kondo the japanese organizing consultant and author became on netflix if you would if you had approached me a couple of years ago and said this is going to be one of netflix's hit shows but it really struck something with um, you know, Gen Xers and millennials and people who have had to downsize their parents and um, this fascination you have in the United States with uh, hoarding and hoarders and whatnot. And your book kind of hits that nerve that, you know, you talk about uh, uh, previous uh, generations in the United States that hold on to their fine china and like, uh, you know, the, the silverware and everything that was bequeathed down from several generations. And now suddenly the 20, 30, 40 something kids and grandchildren are like, I don't want to deal with it. Mom, dad, sorry, but grandma's China doesn't mean anything to me. I, I don't want, you know, I'm, I'm flattered that this stuff was kept in the family, but it really is meaningless to me. Yeah. And, and it's going to become a bigger and bigger problem over the next, you know, a few years, uh, really, and, and remain one for the next 30 years, because the baby boomers, the most consumptive generation in modern, in, in human history, are starting to downsize, and they're starting to move into senior living facilities, and all the stuff they've accumulated in their homes, and, and I'll just refer to American homes for right now, but in American homes, which have been, you know, been increasing in size, and thus they've been holding more and more stuff are going to are going to have to be cleaned out and there's going to need to be some destination for that stuff and and just as you know people sort of think of recycling as going to the green fairies not everybody but a lot of people do you know i think the knee-jerk reaction is to say ah well you know don't worry i'm just going to be a lot of work to clean this out but somebody at goodwill will buy our stuff and and that's just not the case i mean there is such a flood of stuff 
and add to the fact that the quality of stuff has been declining and, and we're going to be faced with the fact that we have all these homes full of stuff that nobody really wants. And so uh, for, you know, and that's not just an American problem. It's also, it's a problem in, you know, lots of developed countries and increasingly in developing ones. I become aware of it in Malaysia as well. But Marie Kondo's um, emergence in part uh, was a reaction to that. Well, you talk about the Japanese paradox, and this has been an economy that that really peaked. It's had its you know top euphoria, you could argue, in 1989 when Japan was right. going to take over the world, and the stock market had its high, and there was that famous stat about the the uh, the, the palace in Tokyo being worth more than all of the property in Canada put together at one point, and then you you flip it to today where there's a true demographic crisis and older people dying alone and not enough young people being born to kind of recharge that economy and, and pay for the entitlement system. And so there's this huge urgency uh, to, to kind of pare down, to slim down. Um, uh, a, a lot of people can't really take their possessions with them. And if you look at a city like Tokyo, uh, which is so densely packed and real estate is so expensive, you have no choice but to, to tidy down. Right. I mean, you know, one of the heartbreaking parts of doing the research for this new book was going to Japan and spending time uh, with their clean-out industry, um, which is, just as it sounds, these are people who go to homes um, after folks, well, not always after they've died, but, you know, as they're downsizing or in, you know, an increasing number of cases have died without heirs because, you know, Japan's uh, population is shrinking. And their job is to clean these things out. And part of their uh, their business model is they, you know, to defer the costs of the clean out, they then need to find somewhere to unload this stuff to sell it. And, you know, aside from a very small handful of collectibles that you may find in these homes, most of that stuff uh, is going to either be exported out of Japan, you know, to Southeast Asia primarily, but increasingly to Africa, or it's going to end up in one of Japan's uh, modern high-tech incinerators. There just isn't the demand within Japan for it. There's not enough people. And, you know, J Japanese people, despite this uh, this reputation for thrift, um, they like new stuff. And they're simply not interested in buying a lot of second-hand stuff. So the stuff must leave. Where else are you seeing interesting, uh, you know, in your research for this book, uh, kind of entrepots kind of pop up. I, for example, didn't realize that Toronto, regional Toronto is one of the world's hubs for secondhand textiles. That yeah, used clothes disproportionately end up in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, specifically in the uh, suburb, which is now more of a city of Mississauga, um, and this is a fascinating phenomenon. Um, one of one of the reasons that uh, Canada has become so important to the secondhand trade is because it has seasons. You know, if you live in say uh, Tucson, where I spent time for this book, um, you're going to wear your clothes year round, and so they're going to get pretty worn out. But in a place like Toronto, with the seasons, you're going to wear your clothes uh, seasonally, especially the summer clothes. Clothes, which are most in demand in Africa and other markets that buy them. And as a result, they're in really good condition. And because of that, Canadian clothes, especially Canadian summer clothes, are highly, highly, highly sought on the global marketplace. And once that happens,
happened. You sort of just had economies of scale. It made sense for folks in the United States to be uh, to be exporting used clothes to Toronto, where they could be sort of packed together with these good quality Canadian clothes and shipped around the world. Mississauga also had the advantage of having a lot of uh, South Asian uh, immigrants, uh, specifically in Pakistan and India, which have been long, long time uh, hubs for buying used clothes. So they knew the business. And it's also been a hub for immigrants from Africa who have been for the last 25 years, the emerging market for secondhand clothes. So you have this congruence of factors and you turn Mississauga, this largely unknown outside of Canada suburb, uh, into one of the world's hubs for, for secondhand clothing trade. And what is it about the West Coast of Africa that draws so much electronic waste? both from, say, the United States, the eastern seaboard here, and from Europe. Right. Well, uh, you know, uh, Ghana and Nigeria in particular are two of the fastest growing uh, economies and most stable economies in Africa. Um, And like China before them in the 1980s, as they grow and as their populations become more educated, there's more and more demand for IT, uh, whether it is laptops, desktops, or smartphones. And so that's been what's drawn all of this e-waste, these electronic used electronics into this region for years. Um, And it's not always, you know, the whole device that people are buying. You know, they may, you know, they may import the laptop, um, but the laptop may be broken. But that's no problem. They can either A, repair the laptop, or B, which I've seen, you know, throughout Ghana, uh, they'll happily take parts out of it and use them to repair others. And again, it's all driven by the desire for low-cost IT and increasingly quality IT. One thing you hear repeatedly in Ghana is that, um, you know, the, the computers are being and the phones that are being shipped in um, from China. China, the new ones, the newly built ones, simply aren't as well built um, and aren't as ideal for the hot climate. They break down more than secondhand stuff, which you could think of as massively pre-tested, you know, in New York City. Um, They're just not as good. So that also creates demand for these things. The problem that you get in a place like Ghana or Nigeria is that they don't, once these products are done being used after 10 years or 20 years, whatever, is they don't have any way to properly dispose of them. You know, and I'm also thinking back to your experience as a kid in your dad's scrapyard and looking for metal scrap. Did you ever imagine that you'd have a multinational ArcelorMittal, which a big part of that is India's Mittal company that's mm-hmm. now the, the, the world's leading steel and mining company. It used to be U.S. Steel, everything about Pittsburgh and everything about kind of getting the stuff out of the ground. I remember watching a documentary about uh, New York during the Great Depression, and the steel was actually delivered to Manhattan hot for them to build the Empire State Building. And that's so, it's so globalized now, it's so different, and there's such a value added to scrap metal that it's kind of a fungible thing that you could send in tankers across the planet. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, I remember some of my earliest memories are going with my father, you know, to machine shops in North Minneapolis, you know, which were, you know, a 10 minute drive from the scrapyard, you know, those machine shops are all gone now, they've gone elsewhere, um, you know, and, and those machine shops in North Minneapolis would melt the metal, you know, they would have a small furnace to do it right there. You know, now these are hip neighborhoods with great restaurants, not machine shops. 
Um, you know, I, and, and at that time, and you know, what I grew up with, it was still very local. Manufacturing was still very local, you know, and ultimately, you know, the tale of recycling and secondhand that we're telling these days, you know, to ourselves and global media is really a story about, you know, the globalization of manufacturing and the globalization of consumption. Um, and you know, I can say as a small child, I certainly didn't see that coming. But even as a teenager, when I saw my father starting to, uh, you know, have visitors from China to the scrapyard, you know, looking to buy our scrap, uh, it still really didn't, uh, it didn't fully imprint upon me. It took some time. Uh, look at your crystal ball for me in the few minutes we have left with you, Adam. Uh, where sure. is this stuff headed? We are seemingly at a tipping point in the United States that even if commodity prices were to plunge and everything, you realize that we kind of are at a cultural point of no return, at least with the plastic straw. Uh, companies like Coke, like Pepsi, like Unilever and P&G are coming out to try to vow that they're going to uh, you know, uh, reduce uh you know, virgin plastic use and aggressively recycle more and come out with more biodegradable materials if they do end up in the ocean. Where are we headed in the next five or 10 years globally? Well, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot more recycling happen at the local level. So, you know, Germany's newspapers, or well, nobody has newspapers anymore, but say Germany's old books are going to be recycled in Germany instead of being exported out to paper mills in Southeast Asia. Um, and then once that those books are recycled and turned into paper pulp, uh, the new paper, or at least the pulp, will be exported. So you'll see more finished products, as you will, um, from recycling being exported to these developing economies that do the manufacturing. Um, that's going to mean it's going to cost a lot more to recycle, um, you know, everywhere. And our products are going to cost a lot more. And so the average consumer is going to bear the brunt of that. And I think you'll see the cost of, you know, our stuff, whatever it is we consume, go up um, as a result of this, these new environmental concerns. And, and the externalization um, will start to be more internalized. You know, I think there will still be, you know, globalized recycling. That's not going to go away. Um, what you're going to see more and more of, um, and it hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet, is but you're going to see more and more trading of recyclables between these developing countries that are generating their own recyclables now. I mean, China is the world's top generator of waste right now, not by per capita, that's still the United States, but it has an enormous amount of waste and recycling, and it's not going to be able to manufacture from all of that. So it's going to be exporting that stuff to places like Africa and Southeast Asia. And so you're going to see a more globalized recycling uh, trade in the developing world, but I think you're going to see at least in developed countries in Europe, Japan, and the United States, you're going to see more recycling staying at home, and that which can't be recycled uh, uh, a lot of it is going to end up in landfills or incinerators. So as the costs go up, inevitably more of it's going to be disposed of as well. You know, what's so great about uh, this interview, you joined me 12 hours ahead in Malaysia, is you, you have like in central casting this dump truck behind you beeping during the entire interview. So yeah, I'm so, so so <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, it's perfect. It. It's a perfect soundtrack, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I know. I it's really hard. Uh, I've got a I've got a four year old at home and so I cannot do these there. So I'm I have to no, go at the it. office. You know. I so. love it. No, this is great, Adam. I really appreciate it. The book it, it drops in November, right? Here in the United yeah, States. Yeah, November twelfth. Second hand. Second hand travels in the new global garage sale. Uh, from the author of Junkyard Planet, Adam Minter. This one's a journey into the surprising afterlives of our former possessions. You can also read Adam in, in Bloomberg View 
uh, Bloomberg Opinion, it's called now. And you more than occasionally come back to the Midwest here in the States, right? I do. I do. I'm, I'm back a couple times a year at least. It's a great book. Pick it up when you can. Uh, closer to Thanksgiving. Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage. So Adam Minter, who joined us from Kuala Lumpur. Beep, beep, beep. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. I, this was fun. I really enjoyed it. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this fine program on NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News, on NPR.org and the NPR One app, and on iTunes at link fullderadio.com. We are a single stream feedstock of high-quality externalizations compressed for your listening enjoyment. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 